0: As you return to your seats, if you would take your Bibles and open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, specifically this morning, chapter 9. 2 Corinthians, chapter 9. We've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, We started the series a while back, 22 messages to work our way through the book, and this morning is 19 of 22, so we're getting close to the end. And our text is chapter 9, verse 6 through verse 15, which in the Red Bible is on page 968, 968, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to ask you one more time if you're able to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy word this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. Some of your Bibles will read that comes from, others flowing from, your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, I simply want to briefly echo the heart of Tom's prayer. Would you allow the preaching of your word to be a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power? I know my own weakness, the frailty of my mind, to remember things or think of things or to be easily distracted. We perhaps hearing the Word know that in our own hearts, the, the inability we find sometimes to concentrate, to focus, to allow the Word to penetrate us. So we're asking for your help. Would you now, in this moment, when the Word is preached and the Word is heard, allow both of them to be a demonstration of the Spirit of and of power, so that we might be made more like Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I've shared before that when I first started pastoring, giving was a topic that I did not want to preach about. The reason for that is because I had grown up in the 1980s, that was the decade of my youth. In the 1980s, there were two well-known evangelists, Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker, and his wife Tammy Faye Baker, who were swindlers. Uh, They were preaching, they were speaking much about giving, but all of it so that they might be the ones who prosper. Both of them were cheating on their taxes and all kinds of other things, and so I just decided that the easiest and clearest way in my mind to distance myself from Such obvious charlatans was just to not speak of giving. Seemed like a pretty easy path. If you could just avoid the topic of money, you're not going to be yoked in with those guys. The problem was I also wanted to preach through the Bible, and the Bible talks a lot about money. I mentioned two weeks ago, when, or a few weeks ago, when we began chapter 8, these two chapters talking about giving, I remember when we, when we started this uh, two-chapter section of the book of 2 Corinthians saying, many have noted that Jesus talks about, his, about money almost as much as any other thing He talks about in the Bible. He actually says, if you want to know the indicator of where your heart is, then just ask this. Where is my treasure? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Consequently, if you're a pastor, again, wanting to preach the Bible and wanting to give a good account for those whose uh, souls the Lord has placed under your care so that you might give oversight and account to Him on the day of judgment, then it is impossible to avoid the very topic that is an indicator of where our hearts are. And therefore, some years back, before beginning a sermon on giving, I repented of my hesitation. But I think there was another problem with my hesitancy, my commitment not to want to discuss this topic much as a pastor early on. My hesitancy was to talk about giving really missed another important aspect, another important element in giving. You see, when the Bible talks about giving, it almost always frames the discussion in terms of blessing, doesn't it? I mean, think even of that text I mentioned, Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It is in that very context that Jesus holds out blessing. Therefore, he says, don't store up for yourself treasure here on earth where moths can destroy, where, where thieves can break in and steal, but store up treasure in heaven that moths can't destroy, that thieves can't break in and steal. In Luke 6, 38, Jesus will give the command, give. But then He frames it in terms of blessing. He follows it up, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken over, they will, running over, they will, they will pour into your lap, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. I can note countless other texts But you see, the Bible consistently talks about giving in terms of an avenue towards blessing. And so my hesitancy to talk about giving was not only ignoring something that the Bible consistently talks about, but it was also ignoring an opportunity to hold out to the people, to God's people, an opportunity to pursue blessing and reward and joy and the glory of God. Because when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, one of the things that sticks out is how much Paul holds up the imagery and frames this entire discussion in terms of blessing. I mentioned when we started chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians that the issue that was going on was this. You had saints back at the church in Jerusalem who were going through financial hardship. Uh, Again, whether it was a famine that was taking place in the land, because we know a famine did happen. Whether it was because they were undergoing persecution, we know they did undergo persecution. Maybe a combination of the two or many other factors. But for some reason, the saints back in Jerusalem were going under a time of great financial need. And so what Paul had been doing is going around to the Gentile churches and saying to each of the Gentile churches, why don't we have you take part in a collection and we'll get all the Gentile churches to contribute to this collection. Then we can take it back to the church at Jerusalem and give it to them. But one of the things, and I said that's the background of these two chapters, and it is the background of these two chapters, but one of the things you may notice is that Paul almost never brings up their need. In chapters 8 and 9, Paul does not frame this discussion in terms of need. These are not two chapters in which Paul is saying, give because good grief. The saints back in Jerusalem are really, really struggling. Some of them are poor. They, They can't have all the, he doesn't talk about it. Nor does he frame the discussion in the sense of saying, Imagine what God could do if he you had your money. He really, really needs it. No. Psalm 50, verse 12, God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God does not need our money. Nor does Paul frame this discussion in terms of a guilt laden tirade against the Corinthians. I want you to give even if you feel compelled to do it, even if you feel reluctant to do it. Do it anyway. It's just what you must do. He doesn't frame it that way either. He frames it in these two chapters in terms of blessing. I mean, he talks about the Macedonians giving to this collection in chapters 8, and he says they gave out of overflowing joy in their hearts. Their joy and their poverty somehow combined in an overflow of generosity. He says to the Corinthians, it would be a benefit to you, I think, to give. And in our text, he's going to hold up even the provision of God. It's full of blessing. And so far from this text pressing upon us so that we feel defeated, this is a text that holds out for us the blessings that can be ours that the Lord intends for us as we obey His Word, specifically in these two chapters, in the sense of giving. Now, I think our text can basically be broken down into a few sections. I think generally we are taught in these verses how giving is to be done, and then we're told two blessings that come from it. How giving is to be done, and then two blessings that come from it. So for that reason, I just want to have three points of my sermon this morning. The first one being how giving is to be done. The second two, these two blessings that come as we give. How is giving to be done then, point number one. Giving is to be done out of a joyful and generous heart. Giving is to be done out of a joyful and generous heart. Now Paul starts in verse 6, he says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul's using a, an agricultural image there, isn't he? It, it's one that we're familiar with. This past uh, spring and fall, I sowed grass seed in my yard, and when I sowed grass seed, I threw down a bunch. If there were ever any areas where there was just dirt and I saw maybe a couple of seeds only there, I just, I lavished. I sowed bountifully. And this is Paul's point. If you, if you go out and you have some seed and just very sparingly you throw out a few seed here, maybe a few seed there, well then don't expect that you're going to reap bountifully. Don't think you can throw out ten grass seeds and have a yard full of grass. right? But he says, sow bountifully. Throw it out there. And then you'll reap bountifully. And we know that what he's talking about is relating to giving Because in the very next verse, Paul says in verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, my guess is when you read something like 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and he says so sparingly or sparingly, so bountifully or bountifully, that, that most of us kind of want to hurry on and get to the second part of that, right? We say, okay, I understand that the metaphor of sowing seed is, is used to, to, to parallel the act of giving. And so we want to give bountifully. Great, great, great. But let's get to the second half of that. What does he mean by reap bountifully? Right? That's what we want to know. That's what we're eager to get to. But let's just, let's just hold the brakes just for a second. Or put on the brakes. Hold the gas, I guess. Um, however the saying goes. Hit the brakes a bit. Let's dwell for a little bit on what it looks like to sow bountifully. Because I think that's what he's telling us in verse 7. He's going to flesh out the rest. He's going to flesh out the reaping in the verses to come. But in verse 7, I think he's describing for us what bountiful sowing, or we might say bountiful giving, looks like. So in verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, the expectation that individual believers, I think, give to their local church, I think, is in the New Testament. Paul is going to tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9:14 that the one who proclaims the gospel should get his living by the gospel. Or in Galatians 6.6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Or or 1 Timothy 5.17 and 18, he he says, uh, elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then he'll go on to use uh, the quotation from uh, Deuteronomy and Luke, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So I think there is an expectation in the New Testament that believers give and specifically toward their local church, if for no other reason we like lights and air conditioning and comfortable seats, right? All things that aren't free. And so there is a certain expectation. But if you stopped there, you would be missing what Paul's saying. Paul is going way beyond adherence to any law in this text. What he is saying to us in verse 7 is, I want us not to be a people who in any way are reluctant to give, but give. I don't want us to give because we feel some kind of external compulsion pressing on us. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is God loves a cheerful giver, meaning I think that bountiful sowing is done when we have hearts that are so thoroughly transformed that we actually enjoy generous giving. When you and I have hearts that that do not have to be compelled, that aren't reluctant, but actually have been so transformed because we know what we've been given in Christ, go all the way back, you remember, to chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, giving is simply passing on. Paul keeps describing it as an act of grace. Giving is just a passing on of grace from those who have been recipients of so much Grace. And so when our hearts are transformed, realizing what we have been giving in Christ, it creates for us not merely an act of giving, but a heart that actually enjoys giving, a heart that enjoys generous giving. Unless we think of it that way, that that's what Paul's after, a heart that enjoys generous giving, then verse 7 makes no sense. How can you be a cheerful giver if you don't enjoy Generous giving, do you see? And so he's saying, "This is what I'm after: no law, no, 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 no uh, compulsion, no reluctance, but a heart that's been transformed and overflows with generous giving." That is the how of giving in this text. How is giving to be done? Giving is to be done with a joyful and generous heart. But someone might say. That all sounds good if you actually have a lot of material blessings, if you have a lot of resources, if you have a lot of money. I mean, let's not uh, deceive ourselves. All of us sitting here today don't represent the same level of income. And so we might say this is easy to talk about if you have a lot, but what if you have little? And that brings us then to two blessings. The first one, my second sermon point, is this. Giving enables us to keep giving and increases our righteousness. Giving enables us to keep giving and increases our righteousness. Now, the first half of this point, if you think about it logically, makes no sense. Giving enables us to keep giving. Logically, as we think about it, that should work the other way. Logically, if we think about it, we might say giving limits our ability to keep giving. Giving hinders us from keeping on giving, right? Something like that. Think about it, for example. If you have three apples and you give away an apple, then you've given away 33% of what you have, but you still have two apples. But if you only have now two apples because you gave, the next time you go to give, it seems harder, doesn't it? It seems that this act of giving a third of my apples has now made giving harder. Now to give, I have to give 50% of my apples, and it will leave me with only one apple. So logically, it seems like we should say the exact opposite of the very point I'm trying to make. Giving limits giving. So how can we say giving enables us to keep giving? Well, the answer is in verses 8 through 11. Let's start in verse 8. Paul says... And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, and then he quotes from Psalm 112, that psalm we read to start the service about the righteous man, the man who fears God. About this man, Psalm 112 says, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures Forever. Now, if you just stop there at verses eight and nine, you might say, I think in verse eight, when Paul says, God is able to make all a grace abound to you so that you'll have all sufficiency in all things at all times to abound in every good work, we might say, I I think that what Paul's saying there is that God will give us the righteous desire. God will give us the will, right? He is the one, according to Philippians 2.13, He is the one who is at work within us both to will and to do His good pleasure. So maybe we might say, as you read verse 8, God is able to give you the desire to give. He's able to give you the righteous inclination to give. And then that would be supported by Psalm 112. This man who fears the Lord, he's giving... He's distributing freely, he's giving to the poor, and he has righteousness that endures forever. And I think that's fair and that's right insofar as it goes. I think God does give us righteous inclinations to obey him. This is part of the fulfillment of what the prophets promised. Remember in the new covenant, God says, I'll put a new heart in you, I'll put my spirit in you, I will cause you to walk in my ways. But that's not all that God is promising. Because if you continue in verses 10 and 11, you'll notice that it turns very material. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, when you read those two verses, it's hard to miss that God is saying through the Apostle Paul, as we give, God will give us seed to keep sowing. Isn't that precisely what he says in verse 10? He who supplies seed, that you're sowing, he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Or verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Now, when I say this, my guess is it may be the case that all of us, I'll I'll admit it can be in me as well, it may be the case that all of us have a hesitancy in our own heart to hear those verses talking about God taking care of us, providing for us financially, so that we can give. And the reason we have a hesitancy in us is because of something called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. And the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. It is a wicked teaching it is an unbiblical understanding of the Bible that says if you are a believer, a child of God, then the path of your life will be one in which you are healthy and you are wealthy. And so the prosperity gospel has said so much, we've heard TV preachers say, they've even used this imagery, right? Give and you're going to sow a seed that's going to make you rich. And so we have been so, rightly so, repulsed by that false teaching, I think that when we see any text that seems to suggest that as we give, God might provide for us, we say, well, that's not material. That's not material. But it's hard to miss that verses 10 and 11 are material. The one who sows seed, God will provide seed, multiply seed. He will enable you enrich you to be generous in every way. So what's different then, if I say that the prosperity gospel is a false teaching, what's God saying then that's different about this? I think the key difference is this. When Paul tells us in verses 10 and 11 that as we sow, God will provide us seed, notice he is not saying God will provide you seed so that you can build bigger and bigger and bigger houses. God will provide you seed so that you can buy more and more and more cars. God will provide you seed so that you can be the richest person on the planet. No, he says specifically in verse 10 he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Or verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous. In other words, these verses aren't promising that any of us, if we give, we're going to get rich. That's not what it's after. What he's saying is this, if you set your heart to obey and you obey, God will give you what you need to keep on obeying. Giving enables us to keep giving. Now, now this has enormous implications for us. One of the implications is, if you're at a place where you say, I don't have much and I don't think I can afford to give, then this text is the answer for you. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're there this morning. So let's just imagine, it's just, just a couple of us. You're there, we're looking at this text together, and you're saying, I want to give. I believe the Bible. I just can't afford to give. And we're both sitting there scratching our head together. Good grief, what a problem. Right? What do you do? And then we both look down at this verse. I think surely at some point one of us would say, hold on a second. If you give, if you sow seed, I think this text is saying, God will provide what you need to keep giving. In other words, our approach shouldn't be, God, I'm going to wait, and when I feel like I'm at a place where I have much, then I'll be ready to give. The answer is just give and say, God, I trust that you're going to provide what I need to keep on giving because that's what I want to do. And that's not all. This text also promises us that God will increase righteousness. Notice um, uh, in, in verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. One of the promises that comes here is, as we obey God in giving, He will increase our righteousness, we'll grow in holiness. In other words, when Tom earlier talked about the church as a means of grace, here's what he meant. As you and I gather with the saints, singing and praying and preaching, doing all that we've done this morning, God has designed the church as a means, as a channel to give grace to us so that, so that as we sing together, His grace is being poured out on us by using the very means He's given us. Gather with the saints. Don't forsake assembling yourselves together. As we do it, we grow in holiness. There are other means of grace, aren't they? Reading your Bible is a means of grace. God has given me the Bible, enabled me to read it. As I read it, I can grow in holiness. Prayer. God's given me prayer as a means of grace. As I pray, God's giving grace in the act of prayer which He has commanded. And as I pray, there's an expectation that I might grow in holiness. What I'm saying is that giving is no different. Giving is no different. It is a means of grace. As we give, we should find our hearts growing in righteousness growing in holy living and if you're saying to yourself well i get it how the bible is a means of grace it it reminds me of what god said that is true so that i might not believe the lies of the devil or i get it how how prayer helps me to grow in holiness because because i'm I'm voicing my my dependence on god and, and trusting in him or or even gathering with the saints how that's a means of righteousness because i'm encouraged by one another but how is giving a means of righteousness Well, i don't know that i can flesh out all the ways but one thing i can say is this When Jesus sets up the reality that you and I cannot serve two masters, the specific illustration he uses is you cannot serve God and money. When you and I make a practice as believers of the overflow of our joy of our hearts being generous in giving, I think it frees us from the enslaving temptation to worship and serve money. And as you and I then give, it's a path for us to grow in righteousness. The, in other words, the individual who makes a practice of sacrificial giving is going to make a practice of sacrificial serving because he's growing in righteousness. He's building it as part of his life. Now, I'll tell the, the, the clearest story in my background. It's a story I've, I've told before, and so I thought to myself this week, I'm going to tell a different story, but I couldn't come up with a better story. So the story in my life that illustrates this teaching, this point, more than any other happened when I was a kid. I mentioned to you that my parents uh, became believers at a, a later state in life. They were both in their late 20s. Um, my sisters were already um, five, nearly six and eight years old when my parents became believers. But early on, my dad made a practice of giving. And I remember my grandpa, Uh, had some land. It was the only thing when when he died that that, that was was left over was was my dad was able to have some land from him for a while, and um, and my dad, uh, he wasn't a farmer, so what he decided to do was there was another guy, a farmer whose name was Clyde, and I knew Clyde well, and Clyde owned the land all around my grandpa's land, and so dad approached Clyde and said, Clyde, would you be willing as you farm your land to also farm this land? And uh, at the end of it, we can settle up. And so Clyde agreed. He said, I'll farm my land, I'll farm your land. I mean, it's really basically the same land, just right beside each other. I'll farm all the land around it, I'll farm that too. And at the end of it, when Clyde would get the harvest and go and cash it in, sell it, whatever, at the market, uh, then part of the money he would give to my dad. And so they had this deal. And I remember being a kid, and one of these days, as as dad was going to meet with Clyde to, to, to get the money after the harvest, they're standing there talking together. And Clyde says this. He says, "Dan, the weirdest thing in the world happened. My land and your land is the same land. Let's admit it. Nothing different about the two. We just draw an imaginary line. That's your property, that's my property. But it all runs together and you know what? This year when I did the crops, I treated everything the exact same way. Planted the same way, you know, fertilized the same way, did everything the same way." But he said I tell you what, the craziest thing in the world. When I went to, 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 to harvest the crops, I was getting 10 bushels an acre more off your land than off my land. Now, why do you think that is? And as a kid, of course, I'm going. <laughs> you know, it's amazing, right? I don't know. I, I, I couldn't have guessed any agricultural practice that I soil, you know, for preparation or something. And my dad looked at Clyde, even as a young believer, and said, Clyde, do you give? And I remember Clyde just hanging his head and saying, no, I don't. And I remember in that moment, two things happening in my heart. One of them, feeling bad for Clyde. But the other, my heart being stirred to say, I want to be a giver. My dad's young faith of trusting in the Lord, and even not knowing his Bible that well, and maybe not even knowing this text, I think my dad was probably just intuiting good theology at that moment. He was intuiting, I think God's providing me seed so that I can keep sowing. And it increased my righteousness. My whole life, this was what I've wanted to be and do, was to to mimic the faith that I saw in my dad. Giving enables us to keep giving and increases our righteousness. But that's not all. Second the final blessing, point three. Giving results in thanksgiving and glory to God. Giving results in thanksgiving and glory to God. Now, Paul's already mentioned thanksgiving in verse 11. I'll read it again. He says, You'll be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, we've already been prepared for this point by the text we looked at last week. Because you could say this, if it's the Corinthians that are giving to the Jerusalem church, why would the Jerusalem church thank God and not the Corinthians? Because that's what Paul's saying. You'll be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, and through us we'll produce thanksgiving to God, or verse 12, for the ministry of this service, your gift to the church at Jerusalem, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Well, the reason overflowing in thanksgivings to God is because of the very point we saw last week in chapter 8, verse 15, when Paul said, thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you, the worldview of the Bible is that every good thing that happens, God is credited for it. It doesn't mean we're we're not responsible. We are. It doesn't mean that we don't make significant choices. We do. And we'll be rewarded for them. We'll be blessed in all of those ways. But the Bible recognizes that even the good we do is due to the grace of God. This is exactly what Riley read earlier in the text where Paul got to the end and says, I'm not worthy to be an apostle. So I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he adds, and I worked harder than any of them. Oh, Paul. And then he follows it up. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. In other words, before you start praising me, thank God. And this is why giving produces thanksgiving to God because every good act is an expression of the gift and grace of God in our lives, and it abounds in thanksgiving. But that's not all. In verse 13, he he adds to this, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from, or that comes from, your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So when you give, they're going to be glorifying God. Giving produces thanksgiving. Giving produces glory to God, and that's not all. Verse 14 while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So as they see that God is giving to them, they thank God, they glorify God. As they see that God is giving to them through the Corinthians, they pray for the Corinthians. They long for the Corinthians. They love the Corinthians. Now, I saw this happen almost to a T. Tom Fox and I one day got to play the role of Paul in this text. A few years ago, I mentioned on September whatever it is, 18th, 19th, whatever that Sunday is, Christopher Ortiz is going to be preaching. Christopher Ortiz, we sent to do church planting in New York. He's now pastoring a church there, and he's going to come to this conference, and he's going to preach for us on that Sunday morning. Christopher Ortiz was waiting with his wife Sarah to go to New York, and the reason they couldn't go yet was because of school debt. They had $13,000 left to pay off their school debt, and they were waiting to get that paid off because New York is an extremely expensive place to live. So they wanted that behind them. And I remember the day that someone walked into the office, and Tom and I happened to be there. Tom called him into the office. The three of us are sitting there. And he said, what is it that's keeping Christopher and Sarah from being able to go to New York? And we said, we can put a dollar amount on it, $13,000. And he pulls out his checkbook, writes a check for $13,000, hands it to us, and says, give this to Christopher and Sarah so they can go. Remember Tom and I said, do you mind if we tell him who gave it? And he said, I'd rather you not, but you can tell him this. That is half of what I'm going to make this year, my annual income. That's half of my annual income this year. So Tom and I then are thanking God and glorifying God. We're pretty eager to give Christopher a call. Come on up, we got a check for you. We give him the check, and you can anticipate his reaction. He's thanking God, he's glorifying God. And whoever this brother is that he doesn't even know who it is, he is praying that God would bless him. He's longing for him. His affection is growing. He does not love the people of God less in that moment, but more. Because giving produces thanksgiving and glorifies God, and I could have added more to this point. It it raises our affections for one another. Now, the only reason, there was a part of me that hesitated telling that story, Uh, except that it fit perfectly with what's going on here. But the reason I hesitated a bit is because there are two things I don't want you to miss. One, giving isn't always spectacular. In that moment, it was, wasn't it? He gave. We're rejoicing. We told Christopher, "It's so exciting." I promise you, if you walked in this morning and you dropped a check in that wooden box in the back corner of the sanctuary, there was no confetti falling from the sky, was there? There was nobody going, "Wow, man, I can't wait!" Right? No, no, none of that. You were just being faithful and you're giving. The other reason I hesitate to tell that story, although I told it, I think it's helpful. But the reason I hesitated is because sometimes, too, I think we think, wow, that was giving to the Great Commission. Gave that gift, Chris and Sarah got in their car, drove to New York for the sake of seeing the gospel going forth. We are called to make disciples of all the nations and people in New York, Great Commission being fulfilled. Amen. Amen but don't forget the entirety of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is about evangelism, yes. If you don't evangelize, we're not going to be baptizing anyone. And the Great Commission says, baptize. But the Great Commission also adds this. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. When we gather in this room, for example, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we are doing this so that we might be reminded, so that we might be helped to obey all that Christ has commanded us to do. When we gather for small groups and think about how to to live out the sermon in a way that's applicable in our lives, we are doing that because we want to obey all that Christ commands. In other words, we are living out the Great Commission right now. And one of the things that makes that possible is your giving they would enabled us to lay some asphalt out here so that people had a place to park so they could come in and learn to obey all that Christ commands. Right now, when some nursery worker is cleaning spit up off the floor with some wipe that Ryan bought for them, and they're scrubbing that so that you and I can be in here gathering around the Word, learning to obey all that Christ commands, that's great commission money. There is no difference. We as a church are about the Great Commission. That's our mission. If something isn't fulfilling that, let's not do it. Sometimes, by God's grace, we get to reach far outside of our geographical reach, and we get to see the Great Commission fulfilled in New York, or Utah, or Peru, or Africa, or wherever. But day by day by day, by the Lord's grace, will continue to labor for the Great Commission here. And you all, you all are so faithful in giving to that cause. So this isn't a sermon saying to you, let us do what you do not do. It is saying to us, you do so well, but let's excel all the more. Let's feel the wooing of this text that says to us look at the blessings that are ours in Christ let's meditate on what God has done for us in Christ sending him to live and die and be raised for us and as recipients of that rich grace let's let that overflow in a generosity of giving in our lives so that we might see the blessings of God the one who supplies the one who abounds in thanksgiving in glory and praise And so this morning, the fitting way then to end our service is to remember the grace that we have been shown, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to come to the table this morning. Now, if you're not a believer, I'm asking you not to come to the table this morning. Not because I want to hold you on the outside. In fact, I want you to know Christ. If you're not a believer, I would love to see you follow in the footsteps of Timothy Bowen that we saw this morning as he professed faith and baptism. If you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised so that your sins might be forgiven and you might have eternal life. And if you would like to talk to me or your neighbor more about that, we would love to talk to you. If you are a believer, you profess your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a member of a gospel preaching church, then in the second we're going to take a moment of silence so the band can come forward, the musicians get in place. But as we come to the table, we want to invite you to come with us. And the way we're going to come is we're going to let the first row exit to the outside, come around, and we'll, we'll have a stack of two cups in the tray. Bottom one has bread, the top one has juice. You can just take one stack of two cups. And then go back into your row from the inside, to the inside. And then the second row will follow, and the third row will follow, and so on and so forth. And when the balcony comes down, they can choose to go to my, my left. In the back area, you guys can choose to go to my right. Hopefully it's to balance out well. And then when we return to our seats, we'll eat and we'll drink Together remembering the grace of Christ that has been shown to us as people. If you're in the overflow section to my left, Nathan will be over here with some trays, and so you can just go first row, second row, do the same thing. Come around and enter back to your row to the inside, and then we'll eat and we'll drink together. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning, remembering the grace of Christ that has been shown to us.